This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, and a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group. Jeff Graham is a managing director at Bandera Partners, a value-oriented hedge fund. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, and he has just published his first book, Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Dear Chairman uses a number of key case studies from the 1920s to today and never-before-seen letters from Wall Street icons to give an account of the history of shareholder activism. This book provides a thorough and much-needed understanding of the public company shareholder relationship for investors, managers, and everyone concerned with the future of capitalism. He joins me now for a closer look. Jeff, you've said that you've always had a passion for writing and thought that one day you'd write a book. How did you decide that shareholder activism would be the main topic of that book? Well, I've always had a collection of of these kind of angry 13D letters that were very much in vogue in the mid-2000s when I began in the, in the hedge fund industry. And I thought I would collect them into a reference manual of sorts, and, and, and that idea evolved into more of a narrative history. And, you know, it's about uh, shareholder activism, but it's also a history of the public company. It's, all, it's also a general business history for companies like uh, you know, GM and American Express. The letters are incredibly interesting, and I don't know where you dug them up, and I'm really curious about uh, the very first Dear Chairman letter that an activist sent. Uh, how did we start the tradition of letter sending? Well, I mean, back then, that was just the way to communicate. And uh, that was uh, Benjamin Graham in 1927. He was invested in the Northern Pipeline Company. And he figured out that they had this huge balance of bonds that they were hoarding. And as a shareholder, he was trying to compel them to distribute those bonds uh, to the shareholders. And so he wrote that letter to the, the Rockefellers who controlled the Northern Pipeline Company. Now, I know that Warren Buffett was a great fan of Benjamin Graham's, and certainly he's brought letter writing to probably the highest and most persuasive point in American business history. Do you think that all of that went back to Ben Graham and uh, his impact on subsequent letter writing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. There, um, I've seen a few of the earlier Buffett letters from earlier in his career, the 1950s, when he is uh, targeting these overcapitalized uh, companies, and it is very much like the classic uh, Benjamin Graham in the 20s and 30s. And you know, so so um, uh, he worked at Graham Newman. He definitely uh, got an, an an education there on you know, on that kind of activism. But the interesting thing about the Buffett letter in the book is it's an opposite kind of an intervention. He actually is intervening to support the management 
in the 1960s at, uh, at American Express. Well, that brings up uh, a point that you really get from reading the book in terms of there being three waves of activism, the early proxy tiers and the 80s corporate raiders and then recently the hedge fund activist. Uh, do you think that this is a natural progression? Yeah, I mean, the progression um, has very much been defined by the nature of the behind-the-scenes passive shareholders. So in the 1950s, you had this uh, diverse and diffuse uh, shareholder base of public companies and of individual investors. And so the the proxy fights in the 1950s were very um, orchestrated political campaigns. And beginning in the 60s, uh, share ownership of public companies began to concentrate in, in the hands of these big fiduciary investors, the pension funds, uh, things like that. And so activism evolved uh, because of that uh, changing nature. And the turning point in my book is when Ross Perot was bought out of GM and uh, the the passive investors were so furious about that 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 they began to get a lot more engaged in the governance debate, and that has resulted in the hedge fund activism of today. We'll continue this conversation with Jeff Graham, author of Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles, and the Rise of Shareholder Activism, in just a moment. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. It's 12 minutes past the hour. This is a closer look at Jeff Graham, a hedge fund manager and author of Dear Chairman, about how shareholder activism challenges inefficient corporations. I'm Arthur Levitt. Jeff, tell us about the first highly confident letter, Carl Icahn, Phillips Petroleum, and Michael Milken and what lesson for your students is in this story? And I might say that my first encounter with Highly Confident was with Mike Milken, who would tell various companies that he was highly confident that he could raise a certain amount of money for them, and that was equivalent to a guarantee. Mike Milken saying highly confident meant it's in the bag, we, I will do it for you. Well, this this all happened because of this this uh, the stinginess of Carl Icahn in the mid nineteen eighties. He's uh, going after Phillips, and he announces that he intends to to launch a tender offer if uh, Phillips does not uh, meet his demands. I think he expects them to meet his demands and to not actually have to launch that tender offer. And so, to line up the capital, he's negotiating with Milken. And he does not want to pay a commitment fee, you know, for this $4 billion that he has to raise. And they argue and they, and they argue. And finally, I think uh, Leon Black from uh, Drexel proposes, well, how about, you know, we'll just uh, say that we're highly confident that, that we can do it. It's not a legally binding, but um, it will be an indication to the market that we can raise that money. And they go back and forth, and Icon says, well, I mean, that's not going to do anything. It's, that has no credibility. But then he, he sleeps on it, and the next day he, 
he comes back to Black and says, well, this is atypical, but let's uh, give this a shot. And that's the way that the highly confident uh, letter was born. And it didn't uh, take long before Drexel figured out that they could charge a lot of money for, you know, for that non-commitment. How fascinating, because highly confident became almost legal tender from that point on. You have a chapter on hedge fund activism about Dan Loeb and Stargas Partners. Uh, why did you choose this particular story, and, and why is it important? Well, it's interesting because it's an inflammatory letter. I do feel like Dan Loeb was the key figure in the, <clears throat> the early 2000s inflammatory, uh, shame-driven hedge fund activism. And that was the most extreme one. He, he calls out the CEO's mother. He, he ends the letter by saying, you know, I know you personally, and I think that you need to go back to the Hamptons and do what you do best, which is like to hobnob with, you know, a bunch of other socialites. And, you know, that era of, of hedge fund activism did not last that long because ultimately the behind-the-scenes passive investors began to side with the activists, and the shame game was no longer necessary. But that was the height of the shame-driven activism, and it was a fascinating period. You've said, Jeff, that one of your favorite letters is a speech by Merrill Lynch's Wynne Smith at the shareholders' meeting to approve the company's sale to Bank of America. You couldn't include it in the book, but could you tell us why you like this so much? It's a very powerful speech. Um, you know, that meeting was... You know, it was essentially the funeral of Merrill Lynch. And Wynn Smith had given his life to that company. And the whole case uh, shows the power of, uh, of bad governance. You had basically a small unit of, the, of that business uh, drive the, the whole plane into the ocean. And that's a thing that, that you see over and over again in my book. You, you know, at General Motors, you have a very fine line between the good GM and the bad GM, and it's all because of governance. And it's amazing how quickly it can go badly. Have you ever sent a Dear Chairman letter or been I, part of an activist campaign? Um, I've done several, and um, a bunch of them have been just direct. And the one that I did uh, publicly was a terrible one. It, like It has a typo in it, and it was just a few hundred uh, uh, words with a lot of passive voice. Um, I think my finest dear chairman moment was I I did this campaign to kind of extract an an, an urgent care clinic that was uh, publicly traded but owned by the Blue Cross affiliate of its uh, state and I had to write a lot of letters to the board and the CEO to compel them uh, to you know to manage this uh, company which which they controlled appropriately but ultimately, you know, I mean, I'm not that much of an activist. I, um, I have been involved in activism just as a defensive mechanism, but it's not the way that I run my fund. Your book shows that there'll always be a struggle between management and shareholders. Do you view that as a good thing, as a desirable tension? Yeah, I mean... Uh, the incentives are never going to be perfectly aligned, and the sh the shareholders are in theory supposed to to appoint the board that that oversees 
the CEO. And so you do want to to have healthy dissent, and you do want to to have a, at times an, like an, an adversarial relationship in ways. Is it fair to say that a reading of the book would suggest that you believe that corporate America is not working in the best interests of shareholders? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the book is is intended to teach you how to think about these issues and and to give you the historical context. But as an investor in, in public companies, I've seen so much bad governance. And I, I mean, I think it's impossible for anyone that does active management in the way that I do um, to not have that same opinion, just that lots of oversight is bad, that in the small cap space, it's, it can be particularly bad. He runs a value-oriented hedge fund teaches investing at Columbia Business School, and he's the author of Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Charles R. Schwab said, Dear Chairman should be required reading for anyone who wants to participate as investor or manager. Jeff Graham will return for part two of this interview next week at this same time. By the way, if you have any comments about the show or any ideas for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, and a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group. This week, we continue our closer look at hedge fund manager Jeff Graham. He began his career as a senior analyst at Mellon HBV Alternative Strategies. He was a managing director at Arclo Capital. Currently... He's Managing Director at Bandera Partners, and he's just published his first book, Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism, organized around a collection of fascinating shareholder letters that illustrate the history of activism between public companies, shareholders, and boards, something he sees as required reading for his students at Columbia University. Jeff, do you think that, in general, activists make companies more profitable and more productive? Um, I, um, I do believe that the pervasive threat of activism is a very good thing. I think it's important that, that, that boards of directors are held accountable and that they know there's a shareholder looking over their shoulders. Um, activism, but the actual interventions can be hit or miss, but I find that it usually does add value as well. You know, having served on dozens of boards, Jeff, and studying the areas that the book touches on, I have to say that my own feeling is that the notion of a totally independent director I find to be kind of far-fetched. You've studied it from a different perspective. You've read about it and really 
looked at it with a very uh, unprejudiced eye. I'd like to ask you whether you feel there really is, in general, a non-biased independent director that isn't in one way or another beholden to the chairman. No, I mean, if they are independent, it is a state of mind. Um, the problem is that even if you're independent under all of the kind of the technif- the technical definitions, a board is it's partly a, it's it's a social organization, and by being on the board, you begin to become uh, friendly with the other board members, and you ultimately uh, become, in particular ways, beholden to the chairman and the CEO. And so, the problem with a, a board independence as a criteria is it's inherently flawed in that it doesn't actually uh, correlate to being a quality board member. And ultimately, at the heights of industry, you're going to have a lot of conflicts of interest. And if you have a completely unconflicted board member, they're probably not going to be an industry expert, and they're probably not going to be the best director. And, you know, so how do you grapple with that problem? Like, you want to have people involved in the industry that know the business very well. And so they're bound to have some some inherent conflicts. That's... Absolutely right, and that's why this book is is so important because it gets into the tensions and the personalities of the various stakeholders in the process. Uh, if you carry it to its legitimate lengths, America's workers really own so much of the industry through their pension plans and yet they exercise, in general, very little power except through uh, organizations. Do you think the uh, typical shareholder in a pension fund knows that they have any power or knows how to use it? Um, I think they don't, Uh, but I have to admit, um, I give the pension funds a lot of credit. I think that they're trying. They're trying to improve governance. Uh, Cowpers and Calsters, um, you know, they're progressive on the governance uh, front. And, uh, you know, not uh, um, everything that they try is is the best idea, but I do think uh, pensioners are in better hands than a lot of people think on the governance front. I think in general that's true. How would you expect, though, that a police and firemen's pension fund, which is populated with board members who uh, are experienced in fighting fires and arresting scofflaws, can be equipped to make important investment judgments? Yeah, I mean, it's a thorny problem. And ultimately, on the pension fund side, they do have a lot of resources, and they they have allocated some resources uh, to their proxy voting. Um, it's even scarier when you know when you take that example and then think about um, um, index funds or or ETFs, and then you have the same thing uh, without the allocation of resources. And so, this whole fiduciary economy uh, that has built up since the 1960s 
uh, creates a huge uh, vacuum in governance. And the world is only going in that direction. I mean, this explosion of ETFs is equally troubling if you think about it uh, from the, the governance uh, standpoint. And I'm not, I mean, I don't have any answers on that front. That's the hard part. We'll continue this conversation with Jeff Graham, a hedge fund manager at Bandera Partners and author of Dear Chairman, in a moment. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. It's 12 minutes past the hour. This is A Closer Look at hedge fund manager Jeff Graham. He teaches investing at Columbia Business School and is the author of Dear Chairman, a fascinating new book on the history of shareholder activism. Jeff, tell me a little bit about your hedge fund, Bandera Partners. It's focused on value investing. What does that mean? Where are you finding value these days, and how are you doing? Well, we basically are a concentrated value fund, and we own you know 15 to 20 positions, and we do deep research on the companies that we own, and uh, we will get involved in the governance site. You know, I'm, I'm all serve on, on corporate boards of uh, positions that we have. And uh, we're doing okay. It's a, it's a hard environment to, to do what we do and to, to charge the fee structure that we charge. Um, but it's a job I love. <laughs> and, um, you know, I get, to, I get to value companies, and, um, and it's extremely fascinating. It's a, like it's a lot like the process of writing this book. Now, the fund has a large holding of Popeye's Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed the CEO, Cheryl Batchelder. She was impressive. Is management of the company the reason that you like it so much? At the time I got involved, uh, uh, Cheryl had already been the CEO for a year. And, and she was doing an incredible job. And the financial crisis hit, and it obscured... Um, the success that the company was having. And so I got to buy a great long-term franchise in the middle of a turnaround at a time when, when no one was paying attention to the successes that they've had. And um, I think that she's been excellent as a CEO. And, um, you know, the one thing that Popeye's has not excelled at is their capital allocation. They've been extremely conservative. And... Uh, the shareholders at various times in the past uh, five years have begun to raise their voices about, oh, we need to, um, to buy back shares, to be more aggressive on the, the capital allocation front. And, uh, and Cheryl has been so great on the operating side and the performance has been so good that those arguments um, you know, um, have not had too much influence with the shareholder base yet. Now, when you teach it, Columbia, what what do you say to your students? What advice do you give them uh, if they want to be in the business of managing funds? Well, the whole point of my class is about uh, valuing companies, and and I'm really just trying to teach the students to think and to be open-minded and to 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 approach each company up uh, with an open mind and to think uh, clearly about it. And you'd be surprised at how hard it is for for people to to do that they they'll have a, a a lot of preconceived notions about how things work 
And I think it's just important to approach, you know, their their whole career the the same way. I mean, you know, um, a lot of these uh, students like they'd like to work at a hedge fund, and I just like I try to to pound into their heads that they need to be creative about the job search. They need to approach their job search the way that they approach a, a researching a company, and that's just well, my main goal. As an adjunct professor at Columbia, you say you want to improve your students' quick filter. Mm-hmm. What's a quick filter? Well, I think uh, um, a lot of our business is that you, um, lots of ideas come across your desk. And then when you actually dive in to do research, you're, you know, you're committing your valuable time. And so to be a good active manager, I think it's not so much a being able to to value a company, it's choosing the right companies to look at. And that's your quick filter. When you get an idea and in three or five minutes you figure out, oh, you know, this this looks promising, I can really dig into this. Um, I know lots of people that are great investors in, in, in so many ways, but but they have a weakness for choosing the wrong things to look at. And I think the more that that you do this work, the better that you are at valuation, the better that you understand businesses. That uh, that quick filter improves. Did you have many reservations when you decided to take the big risk of starting your own fund? I um, I did, but at the same time, um, you know, I never really had the option of being, you know, kind of a big cheese at an established uh, fund. So. It would be interesting if I were coming of age in the industry now. I think in the industry now, it's much harder for small funds to raise capital. I think that pedigree is very valuable right now in this way that I both, you know, I don't completely understand why that's the case, but I think it also makes it very hard to succeed in the industry on your own without some pedigree. Um, What does that mean, Jeff? It means if you have worked at an established fund, so pedigree in your job history, if you come out of Third Point or if you come out of Pershing Square, um, if you're a really good analyst that comes out of a fund that, that no one has really heard of, it's going to be much harder for you to raise money. And I think that was a lot less the case um, in the early 2000s, where you know we all basically came from nowhere anyway, and it was a much uh, younger and less mature industry. He's a hedge fund manager, teaches investing at Columbia Business School, and he just published his first book, The Story of the Rise of Shareholder Activism, told compellingly and instructively in Dear Chairman. And I urge all of my listeners to buy and read this book. It's a book that dissects the dramatic deals and brings to life the characters of the past hundred years, told through entertaining case studies and absolutely fascinating original letters from some of the most legendary and controversial investors and activists. Jeff Graham, thanks for joining us. And by the way, if any in the audience have comments about the show or Suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word.
This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. 